Almighty God, to whom all of our hearts are open and to whom none of our thoughts are hidden, pray that you would cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we could love you with our whole heart. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and all God's people said. Amen. Well, I'm so glad you've joined us, whether you're joining us online or you're joining us here in the room. Uh, We're in week three of a series called Good Grief, and we're going to be looking at the words, um, an experience of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We stand together out of respect for God's Word, and so thanks for standing. Um, I'll be reading this aloud. You can follow along on the screen. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So we're picking up this story right in the middle of Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. Now Bethany, the town, was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, "I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, I'm sure through tears, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the shortest verse in all of the Bible Jesus wept. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of respect for God's word. Well, I want to talk to you today about helping uh, your friend or family member through grief without making it worse. Uh, Just turn to your neighbor and say, I'm not going to make this worse. I'm not going to make this worse. Uh, In this series, we're learning to deal with grief, and what we've been saying through this series is that because of COVID, we're all in a season of loss. This is a global phenomenon, and then when loss is the experience, the name of the emotion that we feel as a result of loss is grief. And we're trying to ask the question, could uh, could we do good grief? Could that even be possible? And so we've been working our way through a series of tools in the scriptures to help us do some good grief and not some bad grief or some worse grief. And so if you're here the first week, we talked about uh, the importance of learning to lament and how all the way through the Psalms, there are all these words of lament. We read, uh, Joan read one of the lament Psalms and you heard Steve read uh, a lament. Um, And that's that's a biblical thing. When you're struggling, when you're wrestling, there are words that are given to you in the scriptures, in the Psalms that you can use to express your deep pain. And then last week we talked about how to process your pain through prayer, that prayer is a resource to you to process and move through the pain that you are feeling. And so 
um, if we can't have tools, if we don't know what to do with our grief, then our experience is not good grief. It's something like worse grief. And without being able to name what we're going through and understand it, what I've discovered as a pastor walking with people through grief is that when you don't understand it, it elongates the process. Now, we're not so good at it. That's why we're doing this series. And uh, honestly, grief is the unwanted emotion. It's the pariah emotion. It's the thief emotion. We don't like grief because when we feel grief, it reminds us that something has been taken from us. When I was in high school, I, uh, I got my class ring. I don't even know if class rings are still a thing, but I got a class ring, and I was all kinds of proud of it. And I, I had my class ring, and I would wear it, you know, and like you do when you're a junior in high school, you think you're all that and a bag of chips, and so you're like knocking your ring on things, you know, like you stroke your chin more often, you know, to show off your ring. And so I'm doing all those things, and, and at night, I would take my ring, and I would put it on, um, on the, the stand of my, my dresser there in my room, and... And I was coming home one day. I was the only one there. I had the key. I was opening the front door. And I thought I heard in our house, it wasn't a large house, someone in the house. And I knew that no one was there but me. And I, I said, hello? Hello? Well, sure enough, someone had been in the house and they'd ransacked the house and uh, had, had stolen from my estimation. We went around and kind of did an inventory after looking at the overturned drawers and all of those things. The only thing they stole was my class ring. And I'm still devastated about it. So if it was you, please give it back. If you're watching online, I just, no questions asked, right? Grief is like that. It's, it's, it reminds you of what was taken from you. So we don't like it. My wife, uh, I, I, when we my Mary, asked her to marry me, I, I, uh, my fifth year in college, went to Mid-America at Nazarene University in Olathe, Kansas. Go Pioneers. Um, I, I worked five jobs uh, and put my paid my bill, and then also was able to save up for a ring to ask my wife to marry me. And so I did all my shopping at all the, the diamond stores, and I got what I thought was just like this amazing, amazing ring, and, and it was amazing. Um, and so uh, I, I gave her this ring, we get married, and fast forward a number of years, and um, we lost the ring at one point, we thought, and submitted a claim to insurance, and they gave us some money for the ring, and then, and then uh, a year, about a year later, we found the ring. It had been down, way down in the cushions of a, of a couch, uh, way down in the bottom, you know how things fall down there, and it just ended up dumping out one day. It was just kind of a crazy experience, and, and so we had to call the insurance back and say, hey, we found the ring, and then we had to pay the money back. It was kind of crazy. Well, so we've you know, been through this ordeal of losing a wedding ring, and, and then, uh, then the moment comes where my wife, is, she's going to the store one day, and um, she had the, the ring on, and when she got home, she looked, and the diamond that I worked five jobs for had fallen out of the ring. Now, uh, being the, uh, um, the amazing husband that I am, um, I said, honey, you go to Kohl's and you spend up to $25 and replace that because I just want you to have something. <laughs> so that's what she's wearing right now. Don't, don't, don't judge me. Um, so that, that experience of losing that thing, grief is kind of like that. We don't like the emotion because it reminds us of what's been taken from us. So it's hard enough when I go through grief um, to then now have to turn to you when you are going through grief 
and help you because it's hard enough for me. So how am I going to help you? I mean, I don't even know how to deal with my grief, much less help you with yours. So how do we do that? John chapter 11, this, uh, this chapter here, the, this scene from the life of Jesus is a, a master class from the master of life in how to deal with grief. Those of you who are musicians, you know that um, when you get to a certain level, you go and you sit with um, a master of that instrument and they give you what's called a master class. And so you know when you're there, this is a master of this instrument. They're going to teach me things I didn't know. And Jesus here in John chapter 11 is giving us a master class in how to help a friend go through grief. Because Jesus is confronted with all of their deep pain. Who knows more than Jesus how this is all going to play out? And yet Jesus lets himself be moved by the obvious pain of the people around him. And he weeps. His weeping symbolizes how he was there for his friends. Now, the prophet Isaiah said that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I think we are people who hate sorrow and don't always know how to admit our grief. And so when we come to Jesus, we're coming to Jesus and we're letting him teach us how to show the same kind of empathy that he had. And one of the things that Jesus did is he exposes to us his wounds. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about what Jesus did for you on the cross, the wounds that he received on the cross, but his wounds are the greatest source of healing and ministry that he has. He ministers to us out of his wounds, and, and we're taught to, to hide our wounds. We're taught to not let anybody see our junk. We're taught to, you know, don't air out your dirty laundry is a phrase I grew up hearing. Don't let people see all the stuff that you're hurting with. But Jesus let his wounds be seen in public, and in the words of Henry Nouwen, he was a wounded healer, and Henry Nouwen says there's no other kind than to be a wounded healer. And so Jesus is the example of going through good grief and helping someone else do the same. Now, I I think it'd be helpful um, as we work through this to uh, make sure we can um, throw away some of the things that have been said to us or by us when someone is grieving. And I've got a list for you. We're going to put it on the screen. And what I hope that you will do is we, I'm going to read these off to you is I hope after I read them, you're going to recognize, oh my gosh, I've said that before or, or I've had that said to me. And what I want you to do is in your mind is I want you to draw a line through it and then take a racer and scrub it out and then get and then exit out because we're going to say these are the dumb things that people say. Um, God knew what he was doing. I had someone say that to me when I lost my mom at 16 and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe he could have told me before he took my mom. Or uh, I've, had, I've heard someone say this uh, when someone lost a child. God needed an angel more than I needed my kid. Or uh, God knew he could trust you with this pain. My dad, after my mom died, his, he married again. And then his second wife died of cancer five years later. And someone said this to him. They said, you know, God must really trust you. And, and my dad said his thought was, well, I wish God didn't trust me that much. Um, or it's all part of God's plan. Well, duh. Um, everything happens for a reason. That's one of those half-truths that's half-true, and so it's half-wrong. And then God sends, never sends more trouble than we can handle. <laughs> I, I wish that was the case. Or, or my favorite is just pray about it. Now, here's what I want you to do. Um, if you've ever said those things, here's what I want you to say. That was dumb. 
Well, that was really, really dumb. Well, I just, can you just say that out loud with me? Because I have unfortunately said some of those things in, in my attempts to help people that are grieving. So I just want you to just con- kind of confess it with me. And we're going to get it off of our shoulders and we're going to move on. We're just going to say, well, that was dumb. Okay, can you just say that out loud with me? Ready? Well, that was dumb. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, that was dumb. Yeah, that was dumb. Now you know better. And so here's, here's why I think that we do that. Um, we respond out of our discomfort and out of our confusion and then even out of our arrogance. You know, we're, we're uncomfortable. Someone's grieving. We don't know what to say. And so the first thing that comes to our mind is this kind of trite phrase that we just read on the screen. Or we're confused and we, we see that the person seems like they're confused. And so we feel like what we need to do in the moment is because it's part of our discomfort as well, is we feel like we need to bring some clarity, and so we try to say something we think is going to kind of clear things up or make sense of things. Or, frankly, it's just out of our arrogance. You know, here we are, a fellow human being. Someone in front of me is my fellow human being, and and they are suffering in a way that I don't fully understand. And in my arrogance, I think I, a fellow human being who's just as limited in perspective, has the answer that that person needs for this deep hurt and pain that they're going through. And and I think that's what's going on. Now, I want to contrast what Jesus did for his friends with another story in the scriptures. And it's the story of Job in the Old Testament and what Job's friends do for him. So I want to give you this contrast. So if you know this story, if you've uh, read it in the Old Testament, it's the book of Job. It looks like the book of Job. It is not about employment. If you're looking for an employment, if you're looking for something, it's not. It's, it's the book of Job. It's about a, a man by the name of Job, a righteous man. And so in the first several chapters, you read the story of what happened for Job. So Job's very, very wealthy. He's got several children. And in a, a series of events, he loses everything. His children are killed in tragic accidents. He loses all of his wealth. He's plundered and robbed. And then he has a series of medical incidents that just disfigure him horribly. And he's suffering. He's suffering terribly. And he has these three friends. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I'm going to shorten that so we can track with who says what. Um, as Eli, Bill, and Zoph. Okay? Are you tracking with me? And so I want, you, I want you to see in the book of Job what Job's friends do first. And they get this part right. Here, here it is. We're going to put it on the screen. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, and then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I mean, they got that part right. There's a practice um, still in Judaism today called sitting shiva, and it's that seven-day period where when someone first goes through a, a period of grief, you come in and you literally tear your clothes as a sign that you are grieving, and, and there's no response, and, and you just give your presence, and you don't, you don't say many words, and this is how you do, uh, how you do grief at the beginning. And, and, and Eli and Bill and Zoph, I mean, they did that seven-day period. They did it really well. It's actually a wonderful practice to help someone begin grieving. And, and they did what was expected of them, but honestly, that's where it ends. From here on out, they don't get it right. And so they all, out of their discomfort or confusion or arrogance or some combination of all three of those things, 
offer uh, help to their friend that's not help to their friend. And so here's what Eli says, and he's trying to address the reason that this happened. I mean, imagine you're watching this guy who's everyone thinks is, has got it all together, and he's wealthy, and he's got children, and all of a sudden he loses everything. I mean, everybody's going to ask the question, you know, why did this happen to this good man? Everyone's going to be asking that. And so Eli, out of whatever he's coming from, tries to explain it. In Job chapter 4, this is what he says. He says, consider now, Job. So he's trying to explain this to Job. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? And as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, Job, this is on you. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they're no more. Here's what he's saying. God, God's angry with you, Job. I mean, if you, uh, if you were innocent, this wouldn't be happening to you because this, doesn't, this kind of thing doesn't happen to people who are innocent. Job, this is your fault, now, put yourself in Job's shoes for a second, and you've gone through tremendous pain. And, and maybe, let's just say that there is a reason that this happened. And maybe, unlike Job, you weren't righteous in all of that. Does it help you to hear that at that moment? No. So then the next friend, Bill, he's trying to address the fact that he's lost his children. I've never seen a pain as a pastor that's deeper than a parent who loses a child. It's just, it's, I, I can't explain it. It is, it is excruciating. I, I, I don't understand it. It's so hurtful. And so here Bill tries to address it. He tries to explain it. He tries to, out of his discomfort or confusion or arrogance or all three, this is what he says, Job 8, does, does God pervert justice, Job? Does the Almighty pervert what's right, Job? Listen, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. I mean, it's like turn or burn. This is like... This is, this is all their fault. Here's what he's saying. Job, the reason you lost your children is because they sinned against God. And if your kids had been better, this wouldn't have happened. And they've got nobody to blame, and you don't have anybody to blame but them. Now, again, you're a parent. You've lost your kid. Does that help you? You're like, well, okay, well, that makes me, boy, that sure makes me feel a lot better and helps me grieve better to know that my kids were a train wreck. So then Soph comes along, and he dress, he's, he's addressed, he's trying to say, okay, well, Job, how, how, do, you, how do you fix this? I mean, what, do you, what are you going to do about what's happened? I mean, how do you get out of this mess? I mean, here you are. How do you get out of it? And this is what he says in Job 11. Um, Yet if you devote your heart to God and stretch out your hands to God, if you put away the sin that we all can plainly see, Job, is in your hand, and allow no evil to dwell in your tent because you let it dwell there, Job, then free of fault you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. I mean, that sounds so spiritual, right? You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water has gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. I mean, doesn't that sound kind of like solid advice we could all count on? I mean, he's kind of saying to Job, Job, suck it up. Do the right thing and bad things won't happen to you like this. Now, Job's friends illustrate for us what not to do. So Job even says this about them, and if you need a comeback when someone says one of those dumb things to you on the list, this is in the Bible. Give my permission to say this to someone because it's awesome. Job 16, verse 2, this is what Job says to them. You miserable comforters, all of you. <laughs> 
You miserable comforters, all of you. In fact, God even jumps on the pile of the friends and says this in Job 42 when, he, when he's explaining what has all happened. He says, listen to Eli, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me. They've been, they've been throwing out at Job some, some bad uh, theology, some bad ways of understanding God and pain and, and grief. And, and what they're throwing out to Job is they're saying, Job, come on, we know that pain is punishment. It, God blesses the good people and God punishes the bad people. Job, this is bad. So Job, you must be bad. And God says to them, you don't know what you're talking about. You're misrepresenting me. And so what they're doing is they're doing what many of us do when we get in an uncomfortable situation, is they're giving a pat answer. Have you ever had anybody give you a pat answer and you just want to slap them? Here's what I think a pat answer is. A pat answer is a, it's a surface truth that's told without any empathy. In other words, on the surface, it seems right, and there might even be some settings and some circumstances in which it does describe accurately what's happening or what's going on, but it's, but it's kind of on the surface, and it's definitely told to someone without any empathy, without feeling with the person what they're going through. And, and here's what I've discovered, is that pious, resounding responses to pain usually cause more pain. Can I say that to you again? Pious-sounding responses to pain usually cause more pain. Now, I've got to give them a little bit of credit because I've been there. I've felt what I think they're feeling. And, and why is it that they do this? I mean, in a sense, they're trying to impose their understanding of the world on Job because they don't have any other understanding. Like, that's all they got. In some ways, they're trying to impose their timetable onto Job's grief. We'll talk more about that in a second. And in some ways, they're just trying to make sense of the suffering. They're just, why is this happening? I don't have an answer. And, and out of their discomfort, they offer their solution. Now, regardless, here's, here's where they go wrong. They are putting their comfort ahead of Job's. So we've got to pause for a second and see ourselves in the faces of Job's friends and say, okay, if I could draw a line through and cross out and X out and erase a response, it would be the responses of Job's friends. So how do we respond in a way that, the, in the same way that Jesus did to his friends and not respond in the way that Job's friends did to him? How do we, how do, we do that? I want to give you three tools. And if you want to write these down or put a note in your phone, this is the kind of thing that I think you could pull out when someone's grieving and go, okay, I got to remember, this is how I'm going to do this right now. I got to pause. And so I want to give you three very simple tools. The first one is, I, I call it feel slow. You have to feel slow. When someone's grieving, they're feeling all kinds of emotions. They're coming like a wave, and you can't feel those things fast. You have to feel those things slow, and so you have to slow down long enough to feel with the person. And frankly, this is going to require some time on your part. So let me give it to you as an acronym, okay? So slow. You have to sit with them. It's that practice from Judaism, you, you sit Shiva, um, and, and Job's friends got this one right because it was part of their culture. I think it'd be great if we made this part of our culture. Um, and, and when you sit Shiva with someone, you don't say anything, you make for the, for the first seven days, you make sure that they have meals, 
Uh, you make sure that they don't have to go to work or worry about work or worry about income during that time frame. And they, you light candles. And, and it's just an experience of sitting with someone in their grief. I remember very vividly when my mom passed away, I uh, had moved not recently from, we'd moved our family from Springfield, Missouri to Dallas, Texas. And I'd, one of my dear friends lived in Springfield. And, and when my mom passed, I remember I got on the phone with my friend and I said, hey, um, my mom just died. Do you think you could, do you think you could come? I'm 16. I don't really know what you're supposed to say or do, but I just knew that was my friend. So my friend's parents helped him get on a plane and he got, got on a plane and flew from Springfield, Missouri to Dallas, Fort Worth Airport. And I remember so vividly um, at the viewing when you stand there and, and the fam, people all come through and some people say the, some of the dumb things and I remember some of the dumb things people said and some people have the sense to just give you a hug. And my friend Jared stood right here. I don't remember anything he said. I don't remember um, any insightful comments. I just remember his presence. He sat with me. He stood with me. He's just there for me. And then the second thing is you've got to listen to them. And so whatever they want to talk about, they get to talk about it. If they want to tell stories and laugh, then they can tell stories and laugh. It's, it's their journey. So you, you listen to them. You listen to whatever it is that they're talking about. And then you offer them empathy. Now, understand, when I say offer them empathy, I'm not saying offer, offer them words that are an attempt to be empathetic. So you, we say things like, I know how you feel. No, you don't. You don't have the slightest clue. Don't. I don't know how you feel. You can even say that. I don't know how you feel. This must be so hard. Because empathy is to feel with somebody. So you enter into their feeling and you go, oh, I see that you're hurting. You offer empathy. Uh, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12. He said, mourn with those who mourn. And then the, the fourth thing of slow is you walk at their pace. Listen, there is no timetable for grief. There are a host of resources you could find. There are groups. We have a, a grief group um, that's meeting right now, and it's um, mostly some ladies who've lost husbands in this last year, and it's powerful for them. I've heard the stories coming out. There's all kinds of resources like that. But there's, there's no rule book for this. There's no manual that describes what you're exactly going to feel at what exact time and what the steps are. I mean, there are people who've written things about the stages of grief, and, and you can read all of those things. But, but very frankly, there just isn't a timetable. And, and the deeper the loss and the deeper the grief, the longer the process. And so you walk with someone at their pace. You don't say, hey, shouldn't you be over this by now? No, no, that's where they are. And so you walk with them at their pace. Here's how Diane Langberg, she's a Christian therapist, this is how she says it. She says, when you sit with a griever, your work is to be with him where he is, not drag him out where you are more comfortable. That's powerful. Second tool I'll give you is practice the greater than rule. Um, sometimes we're tempted, you know, we just want to get past our discomfort or past the, dis the confusion and uh, and so we have these things in us that kind of bubble up. And, and so it's, it's things like, okay, presence, my presence is greater than my words. My empathy is greater than my advice right now. Their comfort is greater than my comfort right now. My silence and, and, and my presence, which goes along with presence, 
is greater than any solution that I'm going to offer right now. It, those things are greater than these other things. There might be a time for words. There might be a time for advice. There might be a time to offer solutions, but that's way down the road. Greater than rule. And then uh, this is the last one, is that you've got to know your place. Know your place. I've got a, a graphic for you. I think this is just kind of helpful um, it, it, that explains this a little bit. If you think about these as concentric circles, and here's the person over on the right who's grieving, and then um, the next person closest to them would be a really close friend, and then out uh, in another circle would be a friend, and then maybe family. Now, family may be close friends. I don't know, but um, beyond that would be an acquaintance, or beyond that would be you're a stranger, or you just barely work with someone and just know about them, and, and they go through some kind of grief. And, and here's the rule of thumb in this uh, know your place is the closer you are, the more words you can say. The further you are from the griever in these circles, the less words you say. If you're a stranger, you can just say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm not going to say anything else. Now, here's the goal in all of this and using these tools is that you would learn to be with the person the way God is with you when you grieve. Now, you need to understand that this story in John chapter 11, is just, it's a story about Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sisters, and Jesus was a dear friend to Lazarus. It's definitely about that, but it's also a story about you. And it's a story about how God is with you when you weep. And so you have to personalize the story. And if, and if that was you in that situation and, and you've been through grief in the past and you've wondered, was God with me? I just, you need to hear this message from the Gospels that Jesus was weeping with you. If that's you at this present moment, then you need to understand that that's Jesus who's weeping with you because that's what, that's what God's like. At Christmas time, we even have this phrase. We say that Jesus came to be God, Emmanuel, which means what? Do you know that? God, what? With us. The psalmist says that he's close to the brokenhearted. And it's the love of God that causes the weeping of God. It's the love for you. And so that's how Jesus is with his friends. That's how Jesus is with you. And then you can pass that along. 